thank you. Can everyone hear me, see me, whatever you need to, whatever, we're good? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and you can see my talk. Yeah, so I named this from particle astrophysics to a government career. I guess that's pretty accurate as far as uh, what happened. Um, and I guess I'll give a little brief history of myself. Um, so, so I don't have a slide on this, I'll just say it. So I'm from India, I'm from Kolkata, India. I grew up uh, in Kolkata. I came to the United States after high school and uh, to study, uh, so for higher education. So there was, that was the sole purpose. So I double majored in physics and chemistry, minored in math and music, uh, took a lot of classes and went kind of crazy. I would not recommend so many majors and minors um, and then I went to grad school for physics, and that's where I had the great opportunity to study particle astrophysics, uh, which I think was uh, one of the best things that could have happened. And then now uh, I've ended up in a career in the government. So that's, that's how it all happened. And so I'm really, really thankful uh, for this opportunity to talk to you, everybody about uh, all this and to make this connection uh, with you at High Point. And I'm so proud of Kalita, who is a professor there. That was my dream to become a professor and she's doing it and that's in physics. So this is awesome. Um, so I guess what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about my uh, research at Ohio State uh, in the physics department. So this is, um, the P this is the work I did for my PhD and it's rather fascinating, I think. And it's also, I think one of those things that I didn't know too much uh, about when I was um, growing up or when I was in college. And so I, I feel like this is an opportunity to kind of uh, let people know about this line of research. And that's why I'm excited to talk about it. So what I did for my graduate work is, uh, so the title, I guess, was Searching for Ultra High Energy Neutrinos with ANITA. Uh, so ANITA is the name of the instrument that Hal was just talking about. So this is the Antarctic Impulsive Transient Antenna. And we did go to Antarctica to do this experiment. So that's the picture of myself. Uh, so I'm just gonna go through these pictures real quick. So this is funded, this work was funded by NSF and NASA. Thank goodness, that, you know, that was really good to have this funding. Um, we did uh, go to Antarctica for this experiment. So the middle picture right there is, uh, you can see a tiny little instrument, but it's really quite big but it's hanging from this balloon. So I'll get into more about that uh, going forward, but that's Anita, that's the, that's the instrument, that's the payload uh, that is used to look for ultra high energy neutrinos. And then I have some pretty pictures of the Antarctic, I don't know, uh, beauty, I guess. There's um, ice, lots of ice, and uh, there's really no road. Uh, one time we were kind of stuck in the middle of the road because there was a sign that there was another launch going on and that was an adventure. So I have a picture of that. Uh, so, so once again, I guess I'll just to do a little quick orientation of what I'm gonna talk about in the first uh, little chunk of this talk. And I, that's really the ANITA experiment, Antarctic Impulsive Transit Antenna. The main goal of this is to detect ultra high energy neutrinos and the detection technique is radio Cherenkov. I also want to mention that these slides that I'm showing today uh, you can sort of see some of these uh, slides in this talk will have two. These were also slides that I used to um, give my job talks when, when I was finishing up graduate school. So as I got through academia, I kind of started to care also about the scientists as well as science and made it part of my mission to help um, early career scientists. So I actually share everything about my journey and and this talk is going to be no different i'm going to actually tell you what works what worked for me what didn't work and uh part of this talk the talk within this talk is the talk that led to a successful postdoc offer just just as an fyi so that's that's just saying um okay so before i so, so i i talked about how anita is um an instrument trying to detect ultra high energy neutrinos um so I want to just first back up and, and tell you about the, um, hello, whoever joined, are we still good? So I wanted to show this uh, picture of, yeah, <laughs> show this picture of the particles in the standard model. So this is what makes up ordinary matter. 
So there is three types of particles, quarks, leptons, and bosons. Uh, and most of the matter that we know of are really quite um, more boring and sort of in this first generation. So, so in the left panel, the purple and the green bordered ones have three generations of matter. And most of the things we know, like protons, neutrons, electrons, so you can see the first two panels have the up and down quarks, and then there is the electron, and right below it is the electron neutrino. So that though that is the most uh, common. Most matter is really made up of those types of fundamental particles. And then, even if you say have a muon, you can have uh, these these other types of particles that are say in the second generation, like the muon. That's the first uh, green one in the second column. Uh, you can have that in a higher energy type of environment, but then it generally will decay down to uh, an electron. So, so things like that. So, so these are the particles. This is this is everything we we know about. And then of course there is a, there are the bosons. Um, but really, as far as my experiment is concerned, as far as uh, the research I was doing is concerned, what we were most interested in is the neutrinos. So the neutrinos, if you think about it in a sort of analogy way. I think of the neutrino as the much, much, much lighter cousin of the electron because you know most people know about the electron and um, much like how the electron is a particle that uh, shows up everywhere in chemistry, I feel like the neutrino pretty much shows up everywhere in nuclear physics or sort of like nuclear chemistry, nuclear reactions, like any, any nu nuclear reaction that you can think of, whether it's in the sun, because as you know, uh, as you might know, might not know, uh, I'm not sure, the stars are always doing nuclear uh, physics. That's, that, that's what um, fuels a star. And, and pretty much any nuclear reaction, you're gonna have the neutrino be part of it. So, so that's one uh, way to think about a neutrino. But another way is that they're very weakly interacting. They don't do too much. They're very introverted, introverted particle. And uh, so that they're actually perfect in some sense for an experiment like Anita, and I'll get into a little bit more about why. Um, and that's what we use. That's the type of, that is the chosen particle for uh, trying to do our kind of astrophysics. So this is particle astrophysics, where we have chosen the particle that is neutrino to do the studying of astrophysics. Um, and, uh, and, and there are reasons uh, one of the, which is that it, the neutrino is weakly interacting. It really helps to point back at the source without getting uh, corrupted uh, along the way when it travels through um, really, really large distances through the universe to us on Earth. So that's a brief um, reason for uh, why we choose the neutrino. And now to wake everyone up, I have a video, which hopefully will work. It's a little dramatic. So, <laughs> oh, it did something. Actually, no talk on Friday. That was just me uh, being a little fancy at one of my talks I gave uh, during grad school, uh, where they basically that was my promo for that talk I was giving. But you know, just showed some like filters and stuff that I built during grad school for this experiment. Uh, the filters really helped to um, reduce noise, specifically from some military satellites, which is funny because now I work for the military. But um, but yeah, it was uh, causing a lot of problems in our experiment. And so we built these filters and that really helped to increase the lifetime. So that was like a very exciting big 
sort of result from that hardware work uh, during uh, grad school. So I gave a talk on this and I made a little video to uh, give a little um, preview of that talk. So going back to this talk, <laughs> um, that was just to kind of help you with uh, show sort of like the story of what was going on. What we're doing here is we're looking for space neutrinos. So I think that's sort of the best way to really put it. We're not looking for neutrinos from uh, boring things like the sun or even, I don't know, other energetic things. We're looking for ultra high energy neutrinos. So if you look at this uh, left panel that I have now, uh, the thing that says where any is on the energy scale I've got, sort of a rough um, energy scale showing on the horizontal axis. So going from less than uh, GeV to somewhere in the between 10 to the nine to 10 to the 17 EV is it's considered high energy. And then greater than 10 to the 17 EV is considered ultra high energy in, in uh, particle physics or in particle astrophysics. And I've put some the names of some experiments, uh, some other collaborations, some other experiments that do work um, in this field on there. So you can see things like, maybe you've heard of Dune or Hyper-K. Um, these are experiments that are sort of, they're looking for particles, they're looking to, to do measurements of neutrinos and other things in that less than GeV energy uh, scale. And then uh, there are energies like Ice Cube. Ice Cube is sort of the premier neutrino experiment, the most, uh, it's the biggest one, the, the, the one at least that has most funding um, with for neutrinos. Ice Cube, the Large Hadron Collider, and Taurus, those are uh, the names of some uh, really big, good experiments that are in that sort of high energy range. And I will say there's a little bit of a caveat. So when I say uh, the, the black scale is basically different from center of momentum energy. So the center of momentum energy uh, for the LHC, the, the highest we have reached is 14 TeV. So that's going to be a little bit of a different number. There you consider both particles that are uh, colliding versus just the one. So when I say that we look for neutrinos that are higher than 10 to the 17 EV, uh, really the center of momentum energy for that interaction, I think I have it right above uh, the Anita label is 45 TeV. So, you know, there's, so, so yeah, don't mean to confuse you. Basically, there is two ways of reporting this energy. Uh, all in all, this is all very high energy, um, as you can see. So our experiment, Anida, the purple on the, on the right panel here, falls uh, at, with an, on, on the energy scale way above even something like the LHC. So that is the, that is the, most powerful uh, man-made accelerator. You know, we're trying to reach energies there and, and, and probe physics that happen at those very high energies. And Anita is above that. So Anita is looking for um, phenomena like particle acceleration that is natural, naturally occurring, say something like, uh, I'll get into more about what those sources would be. And the energy is really higher. We cannot achieve these energies on earth as of yet. So, so that's the special thing about Anita is that it's looking for particles uh, that are very high energy, uh, also known as ultra high energy. So let's look at um, some processes. So the, a very commonly referenced process for where you would make such neutrinos is this proton uh, interacting with photon a reaction. So this is an example of a nuclear reaction. I was talking about how there's basically uh, chemistry between, uh, you can think of fundamental particles happening in the universe, whether it's in a star, whether it's, uh, say, a proton is just traveling through space and it meets with a photon. Um, and that can happen because we have something called the cosmic microwave background, which is a bunch of photons. And if you're, if you have something like, so this picture on the left, uh, bottom left uh, of my right slide now. If you uh, have a proton, which is an example of a cosmic ray, uh, cosmic ray is basically just uh, particles. It can be protons or heavier uh, nuclei. If you have a proton going through space and it meets with a photon, it can make this uh, reaction where it basically makes a bunch of pions intermediately, and then that will decay into neutrinos. So that's what happens a lot is that a proton and a photon or some other heavier uh, nucleus and a photon can interact 
make some intermediate particles that are heavier, but they are not stable. Um, and they will make, they will decay into ultra high energy neutrinos uh, because neutrinos are stable, stable fundamental particle particles. And often that's the end result, or at least a side product of many, many nuclear uh, reactions. So that, so there are, that this one uh, is a very commonly referenced process of production. And although this proton meeting a photon, in space way of making an ultra energy neutrino is something that people talk about a lot. It's not really my favorite way of making an ultra energy neutrino. And now I'll get into that. So what is my favorite way? So there is this cosmogenic way, which is the cosmic ray or a proton meeting with a photon, or what we say is the astrophysical way of making an ultra energy neutrino. Astrophysical way of making an ultra energy neutrino is when this kind of uh, nuclear physics, nuclear reaction, what have you, is happening in exciting sources, such as gamma ray bursts. And I am obsessed mm -hmm. with gamma ray bursts, which is why I cannot help but tell you all about it. So. I don't know if you like gamma ray bursts, but they're just awesome. Uh, they are my favorite explosions in the sky. Basically, if you have, so, so you know that, that there are stars and stars, unfortunately, just like people, they die in the end, they become big. Um, they have two main things going on. They have gravity trying to pull them down, trying to basically make them collapse. And then they have their nuclear reactions, uh, which, fuels them and keeps them going. Like our sun is very young, so it's still going. It's still making helium from hydrogen and it's still a thing that exists and is and we're all good. However, so, some stars get older and they get uh, bigger and they basically, this whole thing ends up in their death. And uh, there may be a big explosion when that happens. There's a humongous explosion and that is generally called a supernova. So a supernova is basically a dying star, uh, an explosion from a star dying. And then sometimes uh, a supernova can be even bigger than the regular supernovae that we know about, that we, uh, that we observe, and they're called hypernova. So even crazier explosion. And a gamma ray burst can be thought of as something that is fueled at the center by a hypernova. Or another thing, which I'll get into, but let me show you the sort of... Um, process I have now of how you might get ultra high energy neutrinos from gamma ray bursts. So basically, there's two ways. So I just talked about how you can get a hypernova, sometimes a supernova that's even 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 bigger than a regular supernova is called hypernova that can lead to a gamma ray burst, or you can have a neutron star, neutron star, or a black hole, black hole uh, binary, which can also end up, I, I, actually, now we know that that's a, a thing because I don't know if you heard the news, um, LIGO uh, has detected gravitational waves from a binary neutron star, neutron star pair. So that's basically, that can also happen where they uh, revolve around each other and they, collide in the end and they do a little dance and that can also end up in, an, in a big explosion. So basically what I'm saying is there are a couple different ways of making this explosion happen, but it's, uh, it's one of the, it's uh, the most powerful explosion in the sky is called gamma ray burst. And as you can probably guess from the name, it ends up, you end up getting a lot of gamma rays uh, from such an explosion. And what can happen inside the, sh so basically this gamma ray burst ends up having lots of shells. So if you sort of follow what's on the right here, the one, two, three, there's plasma shells that are propagating at different speeds. The, some of them will collide. And then when they're colliding, you can have all kinds of things happen and particles are emitted. And basically with, the, with these collisions, and these are not normal collisions, these are like ginormous collisions, you can have a lot of particles getting accelerated. So think about Large Hadron Collider, except this is a naturally uh, occurring collide, uh, accelerator of particles. So gamma ray burst, in other words, is a naturally occurring particle accelerator. It can accelerate electrons as well as protons. We actually don't know um, if it does accelerate protons like it accelerates electrons. But if you follow the left flowchart on the on the left of the slide, you can see the accelerated electrons will be the ones who are responsible for doing the synchrotron, the inverse Compton, Compton processes of physics that then lead to gamma rays. And we see the gamma rays, so we know obviously gamma ray bursts, we give us gamma rays. That is coming from the accelerated electrons. However, 
the right-hand side path can also happen where you have accelerated protons, which then interact with those photons, the gamma rays coming from the gamma ray burst, which can then make those pions just like normal. And then that can make the high energy and ultra high energy neutrinos. We have not seen evidence of high energy and ultra high energy neutrino directly associated with a gamma ray burst. So we don't know if this right side happens or not, but this is just basically physicists trying to make a head or tail of what is the processes that are going on inside a gamma ray burst. And it's still under study and I love it. So wanted to share it with you. So yeah, I, you know, part of my grad school study, I went to the uh, London uh, UCL, U University College London, and then Moulard Space Science Lab is part of uh, that organization and I actually talked to some swift scientists people who actually observe gamma ray bursts and know about gamma rays and I just wanted to share that with you that basically observers will always know a whole lot of information if you're ever interested in some kind of phenomenon observers know information about that more than uh, the people who are not directly observing the events and, I, and, and that was very uh, helpful for me to do that and uh, basically, I was I part of, as part of my graduate work. I was starting to uh, design a study to find gamma ray burst neutrinos with Anita, um, constraining in direction as well as time, and that would have greatly helped to reduce thresholds for this uh, search, which is something that in these searches we care about very much because uh, ultimately finding these neutrinos is really hard. So, sorry that was a bit confused. Confusing. I'll. I'll now give you more intel on uh, what this ultra high energy neutrino detection means. So I just mentioned how this is very difficult to uh, detect. That's because the energies of neutrinos that we're trying to detect. So normal neutrinos that are low energy are, are everywhere. Those are not hard to detect, but these ultra high energy neutrinos are very rare and therefore they are hard to detect. And how we detect ultra high energy neutrinos is through their interaction with regular matter with some you know with with existing matter like uh, say ice so we pick ice really what you need is some kind of dielectric material you want some kind of material to be present and the neutrino will go hit a nucleus and uh, depending on how rare this new, new, the neutrino is these interactions the interaction lengths can be long or short in other words, the interactions itself can be very rare. So in the end, what you end up requiring is a bunch of uh, volume of that interacting, interacting material, or sometimes we call that interacting medium or detection medium or detection volume. So you need a whole lot of volume to capture these rare interactions. So that's what this left slide is telling you. And then once this rare interaction does happen, how do we actually see it? How do we see it? Why do we need an instrument? Why do we have an instrument like Anita? So once this kind of interaction between a neutrino and a nucleus happens, what, what ends up from that is you have a particle shower made up of photons, positrons, electrons. And this particle shower, uh, and, and normally when you have a particle meeting another particle, there's not gonna be a particle shower. This is only happening because of the very high energies involved, right? So when I say that this neutrino interacted with a nucleus within that material, which could be ice, salt, water, what, what have you, uh, I actually mean that neutrino is probably interacting with the quark within that nucleus. So it's really specific, it's, it's, it's in there. It's a very high energy interaction. And it makes this particle shower made up of different particles, which is now traveling inside that detection material at a speed greater than the speed of light in that medium. So, and as it's doing that, it develops a charge asymmetry. Now we know this by doing studies about this. Basically there are more ways you can make um, electrons than there is positrons. And so basically there's a negative charge, a 20% charge asymmetry develops off this particle shower. So now we've got a charged particle shower traveling through this me medium at a speed greater than the speed of light in that medium. And that produces Cherenkov radiation. That, that is the, so Cherenkov radiation is named after, after a person, but this radiation that we get out of this interacting of the neutrino in the material, that is known as Cherenkov radiation. So this is to kind of explain how Cherenkov radiation is produced. And then we like that very much. We are like, okay, Cherenkov radiation, we can detect that. That is how we're gonna detect these neutrinos. But there's one last catch, which is that the Cherenkov radiation has to be coherent for us to be able to detect it properly. And it is coherent 
when the shower size, when that particle shower size is greater than the, uh, or when the wavelength that you are trying to detect this shower at is greater than the shower size. So I could have said this the other way, when the shower size is less than the wavelength. <laughs> so this is what's required. This whole cycle is required for us to be detecting these neutrinos uh, using what we use is ice, other people use water, uh, people have used salt, you just need a dielectric material because all the neutrino cares about is that nucleus in the material. It's rare, so you need a lot of that material. It creates that particle shower, that particle shower becomes negatively charged or there is a charge asymmetry or it's a charged particle shower now traveling through that material at a speed greater than the speed of light which produces Cherenkov radiation. When the Cherenkov radiation is coherent, we can detect it and that gives us uh, some geometry to work with because that now, now we're talking about shower size and it ends up being radio waves is where it's coherent. So that's why we, uh, first of all, we need Antarctica to give us the material. And second of all, we need uh, radio antennas. So, so that's, this is the story, the story behind why we have a radio telescope for uh, detecting ultra energy neutrinos and why we need Antarctica. So we need Antarctica. It's a very great continent that is uh, mostly ice, has very little rock as I was there and uh, that rock is made of volcanoes. Uh, but I won't go into that because that has nothing to do with this experiment. But basically, yeah, so Antarctica is great because it gives us a lot of ice, which is by the way, radio clear, which is awesome. So. So now I've got this picture, this cartoon of that neutrino coming in, making that particle shower, which kind of looks like a pancake. And the dimension of interest here is that 10 centimeters uh, size. And basically you've got the Cherenkov radiation now, which uh, strong, so, so this, you can see sort of a half a cone over here now with the arrow. So the top of that Cherenkov cone for the Cherenkov radiation you get from this neutrino interacting in the ice for this geometry is that up the, the, the thicker red arrow there. And so you can see half of the cone there and the strongest radio emission is on that cone, um, which is where the waves, the radio waves are coherent because of the geometry of the particle showers. So, so it's a little involved this process, but, but you know, that's, that's what we, uh, what, that's what we do. Basically in particle astrophysics, you have to figure out which particle you like, you have to figure out how you're gonna de detect it and then figure out all these details of how that works, how that detection works. And then this is a picture of Anita. So because we're detecting these neutrinos with radio waves, with the radio waves coming from the neutrinos interaction in ice, we need a bunch of radio antennas. So this is Anita, this is two people standing in front of Anita. So you can see that Anita is quite big. That's me and Linda, uh, a postdoc on the, on the project. And so this is Anita 4. I, there, are, there have been four uh, iterations of this uh, experiment so far. And I went down to the ice for the fourth one. And this, uh, with each one, we try to make the instrument better. And so this one has 48 radio antennas that are, that are uh, functioning between 200 to 1200 megahertz. Uh, it's, it's solar powered um, because you know, it's a payload that will go up in the sky uh, to look down on the ice to collect the radio waves coming from the internet interactions in the ice. Um, and it's, it's currently, we're getting it prepared for launch. So that's the picture from, from, uh, from before launch right there. Okay, how Anita works, let's see. So, so yeah, this is the fun picture. So basically at this point on, on this picture, on the top here, you can see basically what, this is where NASA really helps us because we do everything with the instrument, the payload itself, but then we hang the payload from a gigantic balloon. And that balloon is filled with helium and the balloon then helps to carry the instrument up to an altitude of 40 kilometers, where at that point you can't even see the instrument, you have to see it through a telescope from the ground. And um, this part, the, the NASA has a long duration balloon program uh, that, that they support in Antarctica uh, near the McMurdo base. Uh, and and that, this is where this is. So, so we were basically when we were working there, uh, I, I was, there is this base in Antarctica called McMurdo Station and uh, the long duration balloon uh, facilities is, is a field camp of uh, where, where NASA and we do this. Um, and so that's where we worked and we at night we slept at the, at the 
base. So, so that's, that's kind of how that worked. But those are the pictures. Uh, it's all very pretty. Uh, it's 24 seven sun during the summer. So, you know, I guess there's that. But yeah, so this is another cartoon, once again, sort of showing that the nice thing about Anita is that it is the neutrino detector that detects the most amount of ice or detection uh, volume, actually. So at any point, because of its height, because of its altitude, because Anita is a balloon payload, it's an instrument hanging from a gigantic balloon up in the sky, it can see all of the size. It can see a million cubic kilometer of ice all at once. You can compare that to Ice Cube, uh, which is a, a famous experiment that uses, uh, that also tries to detect neutrinos. And Ice Cube is a cubic kilometer of ice. So um, this is a million, you know, a million cubic kilometer of ice. It's a, quite a bit more. And that is only because uh, that is linked to that we're trying to uh, get the radio waves, which is linked to the fact that we're trying to look for very um, rare neutrinos uh, through this Cherenkov radiation, which for radio, it's called Escarian effect. Just a name, don't worry about it. So, so yeah, that's how, this is the cartoon of how that works. You can sort of see that there is some special geometries that would work. Uh, not every geometry, not every neutrino when coming into the ice, uh, like if the neutrino is super deep this way, not every uh, direction of neutrino is going to work for detection with this instrument, but you know, we try. So, okay, I have another little video. Third launch attempt for Anita 4. This is, oh, sorry. Whoops. Ah, it didn't, I, I messed it up. It's okay. It was the launch video. Maybe I'll share it with you later. It's basically uh, showing that balloon getting filled up. And I don't think that I actually had it go to the end where it actually launches because I was too busy crying at that time. I'm so sorry. So uh, <laughs> it was... It was a long, it was a long over a month getting it ready to launch and then launching it. So it was a big deal. But anyway, I, I messed up the video. We'll just look at the flights now. <laughs> so Anita has had four flights, uh, Anita one, two, three, and four. You can sort of see the length of flight here. So we have had 35 day long flight, 30 day long flight, 22 days, 27 days. Anita four was actually did quite well, it was 27 days. And we increased the lifetime by 3x because of the filters I worked on. So, uh, so it was really good. Anita 4 is the best flight. And actually, we might not have more flights of Anita because if you, sometimes when you do really well, they don't give you any more money to do more work. Uh, whatever. But yeah, so those are, those are the sort of the timelines and stuff. And then this is some picture of me looking, uh, I don't know, happy, very happy. I was very happy. So this is that... This is a picture of me holding up my my board, uh, which which was the filters. So basically, this green board has six channels for each for an RF channel. Basically, what we do is signal processing. Like we collect the radio wave, and then we do a bunch of signal processing on that radio wave to then make anything out of it. As far as trying to see whether it's coming from a neutrino or what. So so this was the little piece of hardware that I worked on. I soldered thousands of parts, got it ready. Um, uh, it, it was a lot of diff a lot of these boards because uh, we had 48 antennas uh, with two channels each. So that's 96 channels and we need uh, three filters per channel. So you can see it's a lot of, a lot of uh, different uh, hardware for that. So, and then, yeah, I just wanted to mention basically the timeline of this uh, project when, when I was uh, helping to launch and support Anita 4, basically you get everything ready, you get your hardware ready, but then uh, you have to do a hang test. In So our hang test was in July. So we went down to Palestine, Texas, actually. Uh, NASA has another facility there for the hang test and testing and everything before we can ship to Antarctica. So everything has to look good and be flight ready uh before we can uh ship things to antarctica and then we deployed and we were able to do everything in antarctica uh so i was there october to december of that year and then this is just showing some results and i'll try to hurry up a little bit because i think i'm taking too much time um so this is um uh, okay 
So one thing that I will, I will say to disappoint everyone now is that we look for neutrinos, but neutrinos are very rare. And of, most, most often when we're actually analyzing everything, we don't find neutrinos. We find cosmic rays. We have the sideband channel where we find cosmic rays, ultra high energy cosmic rays instead of neutrinos. So you can see sort of our flight path on top of the continent here on the, in the picture. And all those red uh, crosses are actually a candidate for uh, a cosmic ray or an extensive air shower particle. So that's still cool. That also, we can still do some science with that. And that has recently gotten a lot of attention actually. Um, and then for this analysis, that is the NETA3 analysis that I worked on, um, we had a neutrino candidate, just one neutrino candidate, and that was actually uh, consistent with background. So in the end, it wasn't probably a neutrino. So there's now, you know, now this is the boring part sort of where we have to do statistics to actually say whether we found a particle or not. Um, more than boring part, I think I would just say that the, the, this is a very hard part because claiming anything in particle physics is just really hard. And Khalida can tell you more about that later. I'm not going to get into it. Um, but basically on this right picture, there is um, curves and some of them are from experiments basically where the experiments are trying to constrain the theories. So theoretical predictions can tell us things like, okay, this is how many, how much flux of neutrinos you would expect for whatever energy of neutrinos. And then there's experimental um, results that can put constraints on those theories after we didn't find anything. So that's, that's, so this is kind of how results look in our field, unless we do, unless it's very rare and we actually find something. So, you know, that's a little depressing, but oh, well. And now I'll just start the wrap up phase of the, the, the less sciencey part, I guess. So you do get a medal for doing this kind of experiment and going down to Antarctica. So this is uh, sort of one of those rare things where you get a medal for doing science. It is sort of like a military thing, but I was a military, so whatever. But anyway, you get a medal, you go to Antarctica. It was a very great, awesome experience and uh, experience of a lifetime and this happened. And then now I'm gonna get into the book. Okay, so I went to college, then grad school, then industry. And I had a pretty, I would say like any other grad student, I had a pretty, I don't know, my, my share of struggles in graduate school. So because I learned so much from that experience, I went ahead and wrote a book on it. And it's called How to PhD, How uh, Creative. And I will just summarize mainly what I say in the book. Now, the information is sort of a lot more organized and makes more sense than saying in, in such a rushed way now, but I'll just give you, I just want you to have the most value out of this talk. And so mainly, I, I don't know if you're interested in, in doing a PhD, if that's something you're thinking about, but if you are, I would just say what I found my, through my personal experience is that most people think that you have to finish your projects and you have to finish writing your thesis. And that itself is a lot. And it can be a, a very uh, dreadful, difficult experience uh, without an end in sight sometimes, especially with the US PhDs, where, which are very, very open-ended. But uh, something that I found also helped me to push out of grad school is to kind of find your replacement grad student. Because I think if you leave suddenly, uh, or if you try to leave suddenly without um, sort of training other people who can carry forward your work, your projects, your research, your advisor might be a lot more uh, reluctant to let you go. And really, at, as far as in the US is concerned, I really think that it's the advisor's decision. Whenever they're ready, uh, you're ready, they're ready, everybody's ready, that's when you graduate. It's not as, um, there's no like, you fulfill A, B, and C requirements. It's, it's not like a bachelor's or a master's. A PhD is a much more open-ended process. So I'm trying to just kind of uh, make head or tail off it and share what worked for me. And the last thing is finding a job really helps too. Um, I would say if you don't have a job, they have no reason to let you go. Like, you know, so if you find a job in academia, industry, whatever, like if you line up a postdoc or if you line up a good job in the industry, if you have your next steps, so I would always think of a PhD as sort of, uh, as much as it is a study and a research, and obviously you wanna do a really great job um, and all that. And in this book, I kind of talk about how, if you're trying to graduate faster rather than slower, because I mean, there's, I knew people who had been in the program for seven, eight, nine years. It, if you're trying to graduate, say within like five, six years, I would say that's sort of the, the stand, you know, more ideal timing 
um, it's not like you get to do less work. You might actually have to do more work. You just have to be a bit more strategic and uh, get through everything. And then if you do these things, it really kind of works out, I think. I mean, it did for me uh, in a time when I thought I might never graduate. So uh, I guess uh, that's just a common thought. So anyway, so there's this book. But then I also have a blog. It's called howtophd.org slash blog. And pretty much if you don't, you know, you don't have to buy this book or anything. My blog actually covers everything as well. I'm quite passionate about this topic of, um, you know, this the helping students succeed, helping students get through whatever they need to get through. It's undergrad, master's, grad school, PhD, whatever. Um, and, and this particular blog is on how to actually finish your PhD in a timely manner. I go through some details in, that, in there and people have found that helpful. So I do have a blog that you can check out and, uh, read for free. There's no uh, pressure to buy the book. And then I also wanted to cover, this is a little extra. These are the postdoc applications I did. And so I also actually learned quite a bit. So I did postdoc applications as well as industry applications. I actually did fewer industry applications and not too many postdoc applications. As you can see, there's only one, there's only six here and two of them are were very competitive fellowships. Um, so I learned a lot through that process as well. So I kind of summarized what happened there. Um, as you can see, I got an interview at every, all of the places except the first one, that was MIT's Papillardo Fellowship. Uh, so I at least did get into the interview phase. Uh, so all those things that you need like cover letter and research statement and all of that, I kind of share in my blog to help students who are trying to get through that. Um, and then you know that's what you you know offer salary whatever just just kind of uh showing you know academic salaries are going to be different than industry salaries they're generally uh, about half of what one would make in, in the industry so just kind of showing what the uh facts are or at least were for me and i also have another book it's called how to land your dream postdoc i know it's a little cheesy but you know what can i say that's that's I wrote the book on that too because I did those applications and I actually learned quite a bit and I have this book which gives you like a template research statement and a template cover letter and how to answer interview questions and all this stuff and again you don't have to buy this book because I share all of this in my blog as well for free <laughs> so uh you know I I sometimes I package it up in a book because it just helps to organize the everything but uh, it's all in the blog so, so yeah, this is just a little piece from that book. Basically, uh, getting a postdoc. I think a lot of people struggle with this topic, and I don't know if this is too much information for the audience here, but uh, basically there are some arguments here whether you should do a postdoc or not. Who knows? You know, that's what's going on here, and there's a blog on that too. And just something I want to share quickly is that, I, and I do this in this book, is that uh, so I actually showed this slide in my talk here, uh, but I didn't tell you too much about my methods because what I've realized is that most people actually care about results, especially for science talks or job talks. You might think if you're ever giving a job talk, if you're trying to give a talk to get a job at some institution, you might think that you need to tell people all the details of how you got your results. But what I found is that people don't care about the how, they just care about the result. And it actually helps to amplify the impact of your result if you just talk about the results. So this is something I talk about in this book for the postdoc because I'm trying to help people get a postdoc. Uh, and then I actually share the research statement that I submitted to one of those fellowships, the Chamberlain Fellowship, where I got an interview uh, in my blog. So, so a lot of people found this helpful. So I thought I would let you know that there is this exists. Um, they ended up giving that fellowship to no one that year. So that's my consolation prize for not getting that fellowship. No one got it. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, I just have some quick takeaways for writing the research statement if you're ever looking to do that. And I also have a podcast on this. So basically at the time of my application, I had no clue what to do, what to write in my research statement. But then what I found is that mainly what you write in a research statement is the research you've already done and then how that makes you great for the next opportunity. So I have some details on this in this blog post that you can read if you want. I also have a podcast covering all of this on every major podcast podcast platform at this point on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts. So I'm kind of happy about that because you know the podcast is also free and it's anybody can listen and it just works so there's that what i do now you should connect with me on linkedin to find out what i do now 
<laughs> there is my LinkedIn. You should, we should, we should connect. LinkedIn is a big social media platform anyway these days. So if you have a profile on there, if you're especially trying to leave academia and going to industry or even stay in academia, uh, I would say getting a profile going on LinkedIn and making, you know, starting to network, connecting, making those connections uh, is very important. And we should do the same. We should connect, you and I. <laughs> and uh, so right now what I do is science and engineering for the government slash Air Force. End of talk. That's all I can say. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. So what I do now is all classified. So I cannot talk too much about what I do now. However, I will say that what I do now is basically utilizing my background in particle astrophysics, especially the part where I was doing radio techniques uh, to, to detect neutrinos. So it turns out the military is also very much interested in all of that. So a physics background does help you to get a job in the military if you were wondering if you want to do that as well. I don't know if you do. It's not too bad. I, I don't make bombs. Um, I mainly, so what I do, so this is my, this is a snapshot of a little bit of my resume uh that i submitted to a few jobs uh that were outside of defense so my if i if i uh apply to jobs that are in defense then it looks a little different but uh this is a this is just um you know i cannot i can't say too much about the details of what i do so this is a sort of a version of the resume that i'm showing right now so basically what i did is or st still do uh, my new job starts monday so what I was doing at this job at Booz Allen Hamilton, which is engineering consulting work, defense work, they're all the same. When you're doing engineering consulting for uh, Department of Defense slash the Air Force slash the military, you're basically a defense contractor. And that's what I was doing. So I was providing Air Force clients insight on survivability against complex threats with analyses. So I was mainly doing analysis work, modeling work, simulation work, and it all, it all kind of brought together all of my background with the RF techniques stuff and, and a bunch of new things as well. So I definitely learned a lot of things that I did not know about before. Uh, and it definitely has to do with this radio stuff, the digital signal processing, all of that. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of double E electrical engineering is part of uh, what I ended up doing for the Air Force and uh, ends up being relevant actually. And uh, some things like Fortran is something that I only done in physics and apparently that's something that they use in defense. So, you know, there you go. There's an application of what we have done in pure science. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so this is what I do now. And then I am uh, transitioning to a new job, but basically I will just say that going from academia to consulting, there's a lot of parallels with academia. Uh, physics background definitely prepared me well for all the technical work. So I don't think that that's really the issue. And then even something like writing research proposals to get research funded is similar to winning contracts in consulting work. Because as a consultant, you're trying to get money for uh, from your clients to do so, some, some work for them. And that's kind of similar to getting research grants uh, funded. And then there's collaborative work. There's also a lot of work uh, that is independently done. So I had ownership of projects that I was mainly like just me doing them. And of course I would be briefing them or presenting them for feedback. So that all of that felt very similar to uh, what I did in academia actually. So it's not like I'm a misfit in this new world. Uh, got supervisor training, became a manager, good salary benefits. So you make more in the industry, that's for sure. And then government clients, value uh, PhDs. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a PhD, but I always was in the uh, sort of idea that the natural habitat of academics was academia, but there's another natural habitat for academics, I can tell you that, and it's the government. They also like PhDs. Then I quit this job, there's a blog on that, why? So <laughs> I will gloss over that. And then I now, so now this is where I'm going. I'm basically, my client hired me. This is pretty common or it's not too common. Getting a, a government position uh, depends on someone retiring or dying. So uh, it's not actually too common. <laughs> so government positions don't open up all the time. They are rare. Uh, it's kind of like getting tenure a little bit, if I may say that. Um, uh, it's, it's not, I mean, academic tenure is harder to get. I know that. But basically, these positions are so rare. They don't open up all the time. And I was a contractor working for the government already. And when this position opened up by, because of someone retiring, they offered it to me, my client, and I took it. So that's my new job. That's going to start 
And I will end with saying that I have a TikTok and I do physics videos on there. And I also put them on YouTube. Thank you so much. I will take questions if there is time. So sorry if I've run over. <laughs> uh, and I will, I'm happy to answer uh, specific questions about my job these days. I know I didn't say too much, but I'm sure I can say more if there are questions. Okay. <sighs> we cover a huge, broad swath of things you can ask about Antarctica. You may have noticed your Antarctica experiment. Gosh, that's a radio, optics, electronics, pretty much any kind of physics. So, anybody have any questions you want to ask Audrey or about grad school, applying to grad school, writing all your statements? I know, Audrey, you have a you have templates in the tech on your blog, right? Yes, I do. So people can just get any template that they want. They can also request a template. So I have a template for a resume. I have a template for cover letter, for a research statement, for a thesis, for figures, tables, you know, like little things, papers. If you're, I have a whole thing on how to write research papers. And uh, if you need a template for that, because I've already done all this. So I feel like if I've already done it, I should share it so that other people don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, that's why. But uh, yeah, I have templates, lots of templates on the blog. Okay, I have a question. Uh, so I am an astronomy wanting to go to grad school. Would I, would having a paper before I get to grad school be a great help or is it not necessarily needed for grad school applications? Like how, how could that, affect my chances? That's a great question. So you said you're trying for grad school in astronomy, is that right? Astronomy, astrophysics, one of those two. Awesome. So I did not have a paper when I applied to graduate school. I tried very hard. I almost had one, but I failed. So, <laughs> so it was a very long drawn, terrible process of me trying for a paper in a different field. Actually, it was in neuroscience and analytical chemistry. So it was still research and I got really strong recommendation letters in undergrad from all the research I did, but I actually did not have a paper. So I will go ahead and say that you don't need a paper, but of course a paper will greatly, greatly help. But I would just say, I think even if you don't get a paper out, uh, trying for a paper is always a good idea. I would say, I don't wanna say publish or perish, but publish, publish. Because I, I think having papers out, writing papers, even if the papers don't become papers in a journal, even just that process of writing and having something to show is very much helpful for success in academia. Uh, so, so yeah, you could pretend like you're writing a paper and you could submit it to archive. Like what I would say is go ahead and think of it as a paper, try for a paper. And if then it doesn't actually happen, doesn't actually get submitted to the journal because if you run out of time or doesn't get accepted by the journal because the reviewer is a terrible person, you know, like you can still, you can still, I would always try for a paper. And then what happens when that, usually what happens in parallel is that you get a very strong letter of recommendation from the advisor for that research. And that also helps greatly for grad school applications. So, I would go ahead and try for the paper and see see where you land. Thank you. Sure. Um, I have a question actually about um, like if, so I'm a junior at High Point and I'm in the Air Force ROTC program. Oh, nice. So I want to go and be a research scientist in the Air Force. So I wanted to know like. You mentioned that it's really hard to get jobs as a contractor, um, but I, I wanted to know if you knew anything about the process for someone like me. That's a great question. So the Air Force will, so are, do you want to go to grad school at all or not really? I I do and I'm going to do like the, they have like tuition assistance, like when I'm like on active duty. So that's, I'm going to get my master's during that. Perfect. So that that will get you in. So basically, if you're doing uh, or, you know, you can get in. So so I would say if you're already doing something for the military, 
it's it's different. So going from become yeah going from contractor to government is a little bit hard because there's so many contractors. The competition is kind of high. But if you're already in that path, it's different. And and especially if you want to, basically there will be a catch. However, like say if you do if you if you basically get the military to pay for a grad school. And this can be any kind of grad school, like master's, PhD, whatever. They might require you to have to work either active duty or civilian for a number, certain number of years. That could be the only catch, but it's very much possible. I know people who are doing that at AFRL itself, Air Force Research Lab. That's where I'll be working. So that's definitely a path. And I can also look into it for you if you if you want, for sure. Having a few contacts always helps. So I think... The main thing with government is that, yeah, it's hard, but it's also possible if you know the right people. Like if you have contacts who are willing to, who who look into things for you, you know, respond to, to questions or sometimes it just takes a while. It's, it's slow, but if you know people that kind of helps as well. So, but I would say it's very, very possible for you uh, to, to have that path for sure. Awesome. Thank you. And definitely don't pay for grad school. Get them to pay for grad school. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? And that, so yeah, I actually didn't know that. So I didn't pay for grad school. Academia paid for grad school, but government will, will also pay for your, uh, for grad school. That's another way to uh, do it that I didn't know too much about myself, but now, now I do. Anything else? I'll ask a question. Oh, thank you. How did you choose uh, the Ohio State University? Because we have some of our students who are, you know, now thinking about where they want to end up for graduate school, or, or yeah. maybe next year where they want to end up. What went into your decision? Yeah, I had applied to eleven schools. <laughs> which is a lot. You probably don't need to, I, I, well, I don't know. I don't want to say what you need to do. I applied to 11 schools. I was uh, international at that time. So uh, it's harder to get into grad school as an international student. This I know from my personal experience because the schools actually told me this, that they always go through the domestic applicants first and then see whether, where they're at before they get into the international pile. So anyway, whatever. I applied to 11 schools and I got into only three. NC State, Georgia Tech, and Ohio State. So those were the schools I got into, NC State, Georgia Tech, and Ohio State. NC State was my undergrad. So they always recommend going somewhere else than your undergrad for grad. And so that, that left Georgia Tech and Ohio State. And Ohio State was the bigger department with more opportunities. Now I'm not saying that a bigger department is always the better choice for someone. I definitely felt kind of lost for the first couple of years in a much bigger department where I thought, oh my God, now I'm competing with uh, so much like the Ohio State Physics Department and Ohio State also has astronomy. So it's really the physics and astronomy department uh, that you could try for when you're trying to do astrophysics. Um, there's it's 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 a lot of professors, a lot of students. So I so it gave me more options and it all worked out because of, you know, this opportunity with uh, uh, Amy Connolly was my advisor, you know, the Antarctica project. But I don't know. So it was. I took that decision based on how large the department was and I felt that that would be more options. If someone, uh, I would recommend, if, if you already know what kind of research you want to do, I would recommend making sure that that research option is available at the grad school of your choice. And also that you like the place maybe because you have to spend quite a bit of time in that location and, and maybe where you have the most support. Like, I totally recommend if you want to go to grad school, say like kind of close to your family or something, that might be a great option. I mean, I, I probably made life a bit harder for myself by picking a place that was so big and so far from everything. And uh, I don't know, whatever. I made it out. So I guess that worked, <laughs> but it was a struggle. That's for sure. Aaron, question. Have you ever considered applying for the NASA astronaut program? 
Yeah, I love the NASA astronaut program. Uh, they just did their, they're in the middle of recruiting right now. So I'm late for that, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, maybe next time. Also, I don't have any flying hours. I, I didn't train to be a pilot, bummer. So I think uh, that would be a little hard, uh, but I guess you don't have to be a pilot. So that is something I will look into in the future. Yes. <laughs> I definitely, that is something I, I have considered. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, I guess if nobody else has any questions, then we can uh, thank Owen one more time. Thank you. And definitely check out our blog and connect with her on LinkedIn because she has connections to all kinds of people all over the place.